Let's bow for prayer, and then we'll get started. We're in Luke chapter uh, 3, making great progress, aren't we? From February to now, we've covered uh, less than three chapters, but we did have a slight interruption. Uh, Father, thank you for the beauty of this day. The coolness in the air really made us feel good this morning, and we thank you for that. Ask that you bless us today as we study the Gospel of Luke. We love your word, and we thank you for speaking to us from your precious word. And I pray that you would do that today. I pray you'll guide our time together. I thank you for each person who is watching and listening. And I pray, Father, your blessing upon them. Keep us strong and healthy. And, uh, Father, continue to bless our church in these days of regathering. We look forward to the day we're able to be together in the same room for tune-up. And I hope that that won't be too terribly long. So, Father, bless us now, we pray. We love you and adore you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in chapter 3. We're under the message of John the Baptist. We had really covered the first 14 verses. We found there that John's message, John the Baptist's message, was one of repentance. And um, then baptism is an outward sign of that repentance. And then in verses 10 through 14, the signs of repentance, uh, like what happens in our hearts when we repent and get right with God. So we come to verses 15 through 17, and we find the people asking, who is this man? Who is John? And could it be, some are asking, that he is the Messiah? So let's read verses 15 through 17 of chapter 3, and we'll talk about them for a moment. And so it says, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up with the chaff. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Fire. So let's uh, let's talk about verses 15 through 17 for for just a moment. Who exactly is John? Could he be the Messiah? John is quick to answer that question. He does not want anyone thinking that he is the Messiah. So he responds, "No, I am not the Messiah." But what does he do as a step beyond that? He doesn't just simply say, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the long-awaited one. But what he does is what he did throughout his ministry, and that is he pointed people to whom? To Jesus. He pointed people to Jesus. And John's baptism is uh, symbolic of repentance in water, and he tells us that the one who is coming the Messiah's baptism is one of the soul and of the Holy Spirit and, and of fire. And so he is speaking of a spiritual baptism, whereas his baptism was actually in water. So John does what he always did, he points people to Jesus. Now, just as a reflection on John's life, of whom did Jesus say, in effect, he's the greatest man who ever lived. 
Of whom did Jesus say that? Didn't say it of me. Who did he say it of? John. John. Yes, John the Baptist. Jesus called. What higher praise could there possibly be than for the Son of God to say, uh, you're the greatest man born of woman. And since that's the way we're all born, then we've got to know he meant the greatest man who ever lived, John the Baptist. Now let's look at verse 18 and verse through verse 20. And it says, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Uh, do you remember what word means good news? We use it all the time. Gospel. The word gospel means good news. On Sunday in our journey through Galatians, we're talking about the glory of the gospel. And so when it says in verse 18, he proclaimed the good news to them, he's proclaiming the gospel, the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, verse 19, when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now, I want to read in a minute from Mark's gospel exactly what happened in uh, John being arrested by Herod. But in this text, in, in the gospel of Luke, we find that John is faithful. He is faithful in proclaiming the good news. Now, would it have not been easier for John to have remained silent in regard to Herod? John knew it was dangerous to be confrontive of one like Herod, a ruler who was used to having his own way, used to not having anybody criticizing him, and who was despotic and and wicked in his heart. John knew that it was dangerous. But he did it anyway. He kept on preaching. I think what we see is John the Baptist preached the same message to Herod that he did to the poor man in the street or the folks who came out from town to the wilderness to listen to him. His message was unchanged. It was one of repentance. And so we admire John doing that. He did not try. It was completely out of his nature to try to curry favor to someone in authority. Uh, He simply preaches it like it is. He tells it like it is. And so that meant a verbal confrontation with Herod over his sin. John was not impressed with people. Didn't matter who was listening. John was not impressed with people. So ultimately, his preaching and his confrontation with Herod costs him his physical freedom and ultimately his life. So I want to read about it. You're welcome to follow. It's Mark chapter 6, verse 14, or you can simply listen as I read it. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. Here's what happened to to John the Baptist. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others say he is Elijah, and still others claim he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. Now, what is happening here in this gospel is that people are asking now, 
not who is John, but they're asking who is Jesus? Could he be the Messiah? And some were saying, no, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, or he's Elijah or one of the other prophets. And Herod heard about all this and he had already beheaded John the Baptist. And we're going to read about that right now. So Herod in his guilty conscience is thinking maybe Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. So here's what it says. When Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now, John, uh, Herod had all kinds of spiritual, physical, and even mental issues. And he hears what people are saying, and he is fearful that John has been raised from the dead, the one he beheaded. Now, here's how the beheading took place. Mark 6, 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. So you see, this is a sordid arrangement uh, between Herod and Herodias. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Isn't that interesting? Herod despised John, was uh, had a guilty conscience because he knew what John was saying was true. Yet at the same time, he fears him because of his holiness and protects him from being arrested. So when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Isn't that ironic? So finally, the opportune time came, and here's what happened. John's locked up. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Now, that's quite frankly just a dirty, evil old man leering at his wife's daughter as she dances. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. I I mean, I hate to think about what he's thinking about. So I'm not even going to repeat what I think he was thinking about. But he uh, is so passionately fired up that he tells Herodias' daughter, whatever you want, I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, his mother, her mother answered. Mm, Herodias is evil too. So she's been nursing a grudge against John the Baptist and here's her chance. I want his head. So at once the girl hurried into King to to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. If you're eating lunch, you might want to hold your breath for a minute. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he's so filled with vanity that he can't say to 
this young girl, no, I'm not doing that. He doesn't want to be embarrassed or humiliated in front of his guests. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. And on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. That's the story of John the Baptist's death at the hands of Herod. So we leave John the Baptist, of whom there has been no greater born of woman, and we come then to verse 21 and 22, and we read about the baptism of Jesus. So let's look at verse 21 and 22, and it says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, we get a little more detail in the other Gospels about the baptism of Jesus, but we find here what we need to know. And in the baptism of Jesus, John didn't want to do it. You remember reading in Mark's Gospel, John didn't want to do it. But Jesus said, yes, you must. And uh, Matthew's gospel also, let me, let me just read a verse from Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Um, John tried to deter Jesus. I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. Then Jesus said, let it be now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented and baptized Jesus. Now, the baptism, according to the form of the word in Greek was not a cup of water being poured on Jesus' head. It was a full-scale body dunked in the water, baptism. And Jesus said, to fulfill all righteousness, I want to be baptized. And and he was. But something else, uh, this fulfills the requirements of the law. He stands in our place as our sin bearer and as our righteousness. He's willing to be baptized for sins he had not committed. Now, at this event, it is important to note God speaks and affirms Jesus as his son. Notice what happens. The father speaks, the son is baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. So what do we have when we have the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit? What do we have? We have the Trinity. And here, here it is. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Son is baptized and the Spirit descends from heaven in the form of a dove. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, you heard the words of God about His Son. I'm, I'm well pleased with Him. Now think about this. Because of Him, because of Jesus, God now says of you and of me, I am pleased with you. Because of my son, I am pleased with you. Because remember, when we come to accept Christ, we declare him to be Lord. We receive him as our Savior. We are immediately justified. That is, we're declared right with God. We we take on the righteousness of God. And so, in effect, what is God saying about you and me? He is saying, because of my son, in whom I am well pleased, 
I am pleased with you because you belong to him. You are his child. That's pretty, I think, pretty neat to, to think about that that is the way God views you and me. Now, we come to the genealogical table. So my plan now is to take each name and speak about each one for about 15 minutes each. Is that okay? No, I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm not even going to read the entire passage. Uh, I invite you to do that, but I do want to talk about the passage for just a minute, the genealogy of Jesus. So let me read verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Then we get this genealogical table uh, that begins in verse 23. Now, we have heard the testimony of John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've heard the testimony of God the Father. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now we come to yet a third testimony. So if you get that first testimony, John points to Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God. Second testimony, God says from heaven, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Then there's a third testimony, and that is the testimony of the genealogy, because here is the DNA evidence proving that Jesus is the Christ. The DNA evidence proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, let's think about it for a minute. Jesus waited in God's perfect timing until he was 30 years old in order to be baptized and to begin his public ministry, to begin his preaching and his uh, working of miracles. Now, I don't want to read, uh, I don't want to read more into that than we should, but I would say, uh, be patient. God is at work in your heart and in your life. And if he waited until his own son was 30 before launching him on his public ministry, he may be doing some work in your life that will take a while before he's ready for you to do it, but remain patient because God is not finished with you yet. Now, he waited until he was about 30, and I would submit to you there are three purposes to the genealogy. Maybe you wondered what in the world's all this doing in there. Well, here, here are three purposes to the genealogical table. The first is the table is a proof of Jesus' Jewishness. It is a proof of Jesus' Jewishness. God's covenants are with Israel and the deliverer, the Messiah, the Savior will come from Israel. So it is imperative that Jesus be Jewish and the genealogical table definitely lets us know that Jesus is Jewish. Okay. Second purpose for the genealogical table is that it proves who could or could not serve as a priest. And if you'll remember, only Levites could serve before the Lord in the tabernacle and the temple, the priestly tribe of Israel, the Levites. And whose name do we find in the genealogical table? We find the name of Levi. So Jesus 
is qualified by DNA, by birth, by lineage, by heritage. He is qualified to be the great high priest. And the genealogical table shows us that. Now, there is a third purpose to the genealogical table, and that is proof that Jesus is the son of David. If you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, we, we discover there that God lets David know that he is going to be the, 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 the ancestor, the father of the one who's going to be the Messiah. And we follow the genealogical table is, as it's found in Luke's gospel. And we find that this lineage proves that Jesus is a son of David. He is the Messiah promised by God, all fulfilled uh, through his mother, Mary. Now, if you look at names scattered throughout that genealogical table, you're going to see some names that you've read about, that you've known about ever since you started reading the scripture. Luke's genealogy shows that Jesus fulfills all the criteria necessary for him to be the Messiah. His claim is legitimate, and it is a matter of public record right here in the Gospel of Luke. And that would be very important important to us because it means the Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled completely in Jesus. Also important to his Jewish listeners because they needed to know that the one who is the Messiah truly is qualified to be the Messiah, and Jesus is qualified to the nth degree in every way to be the Messiah. Now, notice some names in there. It goes all the way back to Adam, uh, Enoch, Methuselah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Obed, Boaz, David, Jesse, Joseph, Simeon, Levi, Joshua, all those names. And isn't there a story behind every name? There certainly is. And so Jesus is the Messiah and has the DNA of the Messiah. Now we come to chapter four and we're doing good on time today. So next comes the temptation of Jesus, the temptation experience in the wilderness. So I want to read uh, beginning with verse one from chapter four and we'll read through verse uh, 13. In chapter 3, we see Jesus as the Son of God, and that carries with it three offices, priest, prophet, and king. Priest, prophet, and king. So verses 1 through 13 are going to reveal to us Jesus as priest. Then before we finish chapter 4, we're going to see him as prophet and as king. So let's look at him as priest. And if you look at the 38th verse of chapter 3, it concludes the genealogical table by saying the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Then we come to chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, the Jordan River, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted, tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, 
He was hungry. You can imagine physically how weakened Jesus would have been after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. And this wilderness is a desolate, desolate place with high temperatures and uh, low, low, low humidity, very dry and uh, rocky, very few trees under which to hide some caves, which no doubt Jesus found and perhaps slept in, in those caves, but a very difficult place. And as we think of the wilderness, it just fits perfectly what is about to happen next. Because verse 3 introduces us to the devil. So the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, or maybe we could say it, if you are the son of God. Some would say, since you are the son of God, it could be translated either way. The devil says, if you are, or since you are the son of God, perhaps in a mocking tone, tell this stone to become bread. Now, remember, the devil knows he can do it. Jesus can take one of those stones and turn it into bread. And he's tempting him to do that for a reason, which we'll talk about in a minute. But he knows Jesus is hungry vulnerable, so he thinks, and he tempts him to satisfy his hunger by changing a stone into bread. Verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse nine, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand uh, on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up by in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So let's stop with the 13th verse, the temptation of Jesus. Chapter 4, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan himself. Are you truly the son of God? Here's the question that every person must answer. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus. It's a question we have answered. We who are Christ followers, we have answered that question. We have said, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are God in the flesh. Jesus, you are my savior. We've answered that question. Everyone must answer the question, who is Jesus? Are you truly the son of God? 
Is he really the son of God? Think about all that you know about scripture. Adam failed his test in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is called the second Adam. Will he pass or will he fail? Well, we know the answer. This is God's true son and the true Israel. Adam had a garden temptation. Jesus had a wilderness temptation. He will later have a garden temptation also in Gethsemane, but we're not there yet. He had a wilderness temptation and everything God has affirmed, Satan tries to negate, including with the words fresh, behold, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Satan is now trying to negate that. God calls Jesus his son, produces the paternity test, as it were, to prove it in the genealogy. And Satan shows up now to doubt and dispute. Satan seizes on Jesus' momentary hunger and physical weakness. And verse 2 tells us Jesus had nothing to eat for the 40 days. And when that 40 days is up, the scripture tells us he was hungry. And Satan attacks at the point of weakness and launches three attacks at Jesus. Now, let me give a parallel there. What are your weaknesses? I guarantee you Satan knows. He knows your vulnerabilities. He knows your propensities. He knows your weaknesses. Have you not found in life that the adversary, the tempter, will come at you again and again and again and again at the same place? He's good at that. Here he's coming at Jesus with what he hopes will be a fatal weakness. Jesus is hungry. He's not eaten in 40 days. So Satan tempts Jesus with provision. With provision. What does Jesus do? Or perhaps the question, how did Jesus respond? Jesus responded with scripture. Deuteronomy 8.3, he quotes, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, quotes the Old Testament scripture in order to refute Satan. So Satan comes at him from another angle. Second temptation, he tempts Jesus with power, verses five through eight. Could Satan really do this? Could he really give Jesus all the the kingdoms of the world? Great theological question, because we'd say he's Jesus is the Lord of all. But that's not the right question to be asking. Could Satan do this? In fact, when we begin to ask questions about Satan's power, then we probably are already on the downhill slide in our spiritual battles. Jesus quotes again. From the Old Testament, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.3 in the 8th verse. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus reserves worship for God the Father alone. Satan then turns and comes at Jesus again with a third temptation. He tempts Jesus with protection. 
And it's interesting. Takes him up to the highest point of the temple and twists scripture. Satan quotes ostensibly from the 91st Psalm, twists the scripture in its wording and in its meaning, and turns it into an occasion to try to lure Jesus to not trust God, but to test God. So what does Jesus do? Jesus, again, quotes scripture. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The best way to fight temptation is to realize that we may receive what tempts us in the right and holy way if we will wait on God's timing and trusting, which is what Jesus does. All that Satan was tempting Jesus with belonged to Jesus, was going to be Jesus. Don't fall to the temptation of Satan. Now, Jesus relies on the word of God. How many times have you thought about this passage and said, I can do the same thing Jesus did? And we can. In the face of temptation, we can quote scripture. We can remember scripture. We can open scripture. We can go to scripture. And that is a wonderful, appropriate thing for us to do. Jesus relies on the word of God. He quotes and trusts scripture. So his view of the Bible is at least threefold. And we see this in this text. Number one, Jesus believed the Bible applies to our temptations. Secondly, the Bible is truly the word of God. And thirdly, the Bible is inspired and authoritative. And Jesus himself stands on scripture. So Jesus treasures scripture and uses it in the face of temptation. If Satan tries to twist scripture and to test the heart of God before before his son Jesus, then you can be sure he's going to come after you and me, which he does. Now, I don't want to leave this text with you thinking that all you can do when you're tempted is is to take two verses and call the doctor in the morning. That that's that's not all that's available to you. Yes, scripture But what is Jesus' bottom line teaching us to do when we face temptation? We are to come to him. We are to come to him immediately when we are faced with temptation. Look to him. Call out to him. Cry out to him. Flee to Jesus. Flee to Jesus when you face temptation. Yes, quote scripture. But in addition to that and perhaps before that, Flee to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Don't try to battle against temptation without him. Go to Jesus. Jesus' perfect interpretation and obedience to God's word reveals he truly is God's son. Satan cannot get him to do what Adam and Eve did in the garden. He cannot get Jesus to do what Israel did in the wilderness. So our major takeaway From this text is Jesus is God's son. Trust him. He endured temptation in our place. So in our temptation, we must flee to Jesus. It is not him saying in this text, okay, I've just shown you how to do it. You shouldn't fall to temptation anymore. He's not just primarily setting an example or being a model. 
what he's really doing is saying, flee to me for mercy and grace and strength. The God-man Jesus passes the test that Adam and Eve failed. He passes the test that Israel failed. He passes the test that all of us have failed. And he becomes our ever-present help in time of trouble. So in temptation, our best defense is to run to Jesus. I'm reminded as I close today of the verses we find in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, what could be included in that phrase, in our time of need? Well, temptation would be one. Fresh on our minds from the temptation of Jesus. What's another time of need? Physical issues? Struggles with a loved one who is having problems? Concern for our country in a in an incredible time of upheaval? Concern for lost people? Anything that fits that term in our time of need points us then to Jesus, to go to him approaching the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. All right, with that, we're going to pause for our lesson today. So we'll pick right back up in Luke chapter 4 next week. We see um, in, in chapter 4, verse 14, that Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth and he goes to the synagogue and they ask him to read the scroll, to read the scripture and to say a few words. And he does. And uh, do you remember, do you remember the reaction in his hometown where supposedly people knew him, remembered him as a little boy? So everybody was so happy. And so thrilled when Jesus proclaimed himself as the Messiah. Right? Nope. Wrong. (laughs) Prophet has no honor in his hometown. So Jesus is going to face opposition in Nazareth. And uh, then we'll go and find he begins before the end of chapter 4 in his uh, healing ministry. So chapter 4, we really get now into the work of Jesus. And we'll see a lot of miracles between now and the time he goes to the cross. And so Dr. Luke has much to tell us about Jesus. So thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this today, and I sure hope to see you next week. So let me pray, and then I'll be done. I'll hang around a few moments if you have anything you want to say. But um, feel free to hang on a little longer. If you see somebody you want to talk to, try to get their attention. Um, I know many of you were at church last Sunday and others of you not quite ready to uh, come back yet. And that's 
you do what God tells you to do. But we did have a wonderful first day of regathering, and we're looking forward to uh, this Saturday and Sunday also see what God will do. Father, thank you so very much for your precious word. We love you and adore you. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And thank you that we, in the moment of our need, can flee to him and there find grace and help and mercy in our time of trouble. How we need Jesus, how we need him. So today we call out to our Savior and ask that you help us and be with us. And bless everyone who tuned in today. May the rest of this week be a glorious week for us. And we'll look back, look forward to being back together again next week in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you. Don't forget your vacation garb next week, and we'll see how how everybody looks on that. Thank you all.